All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. I know that's a passage, a section of Scripture that we haven't spent a lot of time in in recent days, so make your way there. It's uh, before, right after First and Second Samuel, right before First and Second Chronicles, so there in the Old Testament, find your way there. If you're new with us this morning, you don't have a Bible, uh, as we always say, feel free to take the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, make it your own. We'd love for you to have that this morning. Today we are starting a new sermon series where we are going to be looking at the lives of two very interesting Old Testament prophets named Elijah and Elisha. Now, I believe that this summer sermon series is actually really important because whether you realize it or not this morning, we are living in a spiritual slash religious climate that is different than almost any period in in history. In fact, you'd have to go all the way back to the Roman era to find a spiritual climate like the one we have today. For the last 2,000 years, in essence, where you lived has pretty much determined what faith option you had. So, for instance, for many years, you're in Italy, you're Catholic. You're in Germany, you're Lutheran, and so on. Your, Your options were very limited to maybe one or two faith options. And so the question that was always in front of people up until this present time was simply this. Am I going to have faith or am I going to be a skeptic or somewhere in between? That was the question. But that's not the question anymore in our culture. Our culture is very different because like those ancient days, we have numerous religious faiths, many different kinds of gods and things out there for us to worship that are right at our fingertips. The question is no longer, um, am I going to have faith? The question now is, which faith? It's no longer, do I want to believe in God? No, it's which God? We live in a very important time. You see this in America in many ways. People will talk about how religion is declining in America, but that's actually not very true. Uh, Recent poll studies have shown that that just 3% of Americans are self-proclaimed atheists. They would say there is no God. So the questions people are asking are not simply, is there a God? But they're asking this question, which God is real? What religion is true? Is there a God truly that is worthy of our worship? Some people, when they think about this, they see all the options and they, 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 they don't even try. They just say, well, they're all pretty much the same. Pretty, perhaps you've heard somebody say that God is like a mountain. If, if that we just had a bigger perspective, we'd see that all the different religions are like climbers on different sides of the mountain, all going to the same destination. Well, the problem with that line of thinking is that's like a person of one ethnicity looking at a whole group of people from another ethnicity and saying, hey, you guys just all look the same. What does that reveal? That you actually don't know any of them very well. That you haven't spent the time to see the differences that are there. And when it comes to faith, when it comes to gods and religions, the differences are stark. The truth claims are competing. A decision has to be made. What God will I serve? What God is worthy of my worship? And it's that question that makes this study so important of Elijah and Elisha. Because Elijah and Elisha were two men that God raised up in a time period where Israel, where for the first time as a nation, was wrestling with these questions. Which God will we really serve? Now let me explain that a bit. bit. Let me give you a little bit of context of the book of 1 Kings. You need to remember that from the very beginning, Christianity 
the Hebrew people, the Israelites, their faith was based on monotheism, which means that there is a one God. They have a belief that there is only one God. The scriptures tell us that this one God created all of humanity and that while he created all of humanity in Genesis chapter 12, he called out a special people unto himself, starting with Abraham, the people of Israel. He rescued them from Egypt, from their slavery there. He provided for them in the wilderness. He took care of them. He entered into a covenantal relationship with them. He gave them the promised land. And yet from the very beginning, his commandment was clear. You shall serve no other God. I am the Lord, your God. You should not serve other gods. You should not make idols for yourself. And so this was the commandment of Israel. Well, as time went on, Israel, because of differences that came, because of conflict that came, they they split into two separate kingdoms in the Old Testament. You have the northern kingdom, which is Israel. That's the name Israel. And then you had the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah. Now, our focus in this study for these next few weeks is primarily going to be on that northern kingdom, Israel. Because what you're going to find is that northern kingdom had a series of very bad, ungodly kings. 19 of them, to be exact, in about a 200-year period. And this culminated with one king that we're going to talk about a lot, and his name was Ahab. He's a king in the 8th century. The very worst of all the kings of Israel. In fact, I just want to read this one description of Ahab. It says this, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So this is a really, really bad king. But Ahab, believe it or not, became even worse because he decided to enter into a diplomatic marriage with a non-Israelite princess named Jezebel. She was from the land of Sidon. Jezebel, when she came into the kingdom of Israel, came with an agenda. And so what you see happen in the Old Testament is that when they get married, they begin to to cultivate systematically throughout the, the land of Israel this idea of religious pluralism. Instead of being a monotheistic country where there's one God, the people served one God, they tried to bring more gods into the equation. Jezebel brought with her 450 prophets of a God named as Asherah. She also brought with her 400 prophets of Baal. And so what you have in Israel for the first time, while they had always struggled to know if they should worship any of their neighboring gods from the neighboring countries, for the first time, Israel itself, starting with their key leaders, the king and the queen, were pushing an agenda of worshiping numerous gods. And it's into this mess that God places one person. And we see that in chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, when it says this. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab. Now I want to stop there. Because literally out of nowhere, all of a sudden Elijah just comes onto the scene. You could read everything from this point all the way back to the book of Genesis and nothing is mentioned about Elijah. There's no lead up. There's no background information. You get no semblance of a thought that that God's going to do something. But out of nowhere, God raises up this man named Elijah. And this name is significant because the name Elijah means this. The Lord is God. 
In the midst of all this turmoil, God places one man into the fray to say, I am God. So here's the thing. Now that we live in a culture that is clearly religiously pluralistic, I mean, there's gods all around us. There's things that are, that are craving worship, things that say that we are worthy of worship, different religion, different faiths. How can we, as God's people in this generation, be effective in showing the city of San Francisco that the Christian God is the one true God? How can we... Show the people of San Francisco that that the Christian God is greater and and more worthy of worship than everything else that, that calls out for worship in our culture. I think we as the church have a lot to learn from this man named Elijah. If you're honest, the mere thought of that, that we would represent God in such a way that that the world would know that our God is true, that he is real, it can become overwhelming. But here's what I found to be very encouraging this week. When God wanted to reveal himself to an entire nation, think about this. When he wanted to reveal his power and his character to an entire generation, he uses one person. One person. And friends, as I've been praying for you, getting ready for this sermon series, I believe that that is what God wants to do in the city of San Francisco. He wants to raise up many of you to be Elijah's in your workplace. Elijah's in your families, Elijah's in your neighborhoods, Elijah's in your circle of influence to show them the power of our living God. So the question becomes this, how did God prepare Elijah for that task? Well, that's what we're going to read about in just a moment. The most pivotal point in Elijah's life does not come in chapter 17, it comes in chapter 18, Mount Carmel, this incredible battle that we're going to look at next week. But God knew that Elijah wasn't ready yet for that battle. So what does he do to prepare Elijah to be ready for that spiritual battle of chapter 18? Let's read the whole passage now. Chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, just for a moment, let me just say this, that, that from the very beginning, what, what he's doing here, Elijah's coming to Ahab and to all of unbelieving Israel, and he's saying this, my God is about to show up and he's going to put your gods to shame. Because what you need to know about Baal and Asher and these other gods is that these gods were supposed to be in control of nature. They were the ones who sent the rain. They were the ones who stopped the rain. And yet, what does Elijah do? He says, my God, by his word alone, is going to keep any rain from falling. This would have ticked off Ahab and Jezebel. This was a culture that depended on crops. So for him to say this, for him to pronounce this word of God would have been a very bad thing. So what does God do? He sends him away. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, talking about Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, 
and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, what I want us to focus primarily on this morning is the very odd way in which God worked in Elijah's life to prepare him for what's to come in chapter 18. He tells Elijah, first, I want you to go by a brook and rely on ravens to feed you. If that weren't enough, he says, when that brook runs dry, I want you to go to a a foreign country out of Israel, and there's going to be a widow that provides for you. What God calls Elijah to do makes absolutely no sense. Why would he do this? Why would he take Elijah to a place of extreme weakness? Because he's trying to teach Elijah this all-important lesson that is absolutely as vital today for us as it was for him. And that is this. Number one, our God is entirely trustworthy. That when God says he's going to do something, no matter what it is, no matter how crazy, no matter what circumstances surround you, that he will do it. That when he says, trust me, that he is utterly trustworthy. And what that means for each one of us is that your greatest, your most powerful, strong moments are going to be those moments when you learn to rely entirely on him and his word. That's what this means for us this morning. This is a theme over and over in the scriptures because let's be honest, we don't get this. No matter how many times we hear it intellectually, we we, we go right back into self mode where we think, I have strength. I can do this on my own, God. We in the West like to be people who are strong, like to be people who have it together. We like to think that we have the wisdom and enough power that we don't really need anyone or anything to help us. We want to take on the world in our own strength. But here's the thing. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows what's coming in chapter 18 for Elijah. He knows that if Elijah takes on chapter 18 in his own strength, that Elijah is toast. And so he tries to teach him this very important lesson. He rips away from Elijah anything that he could depend on. He rips away anything that he could find comfort in so that Elijah would come to this place where he is utterly dependent on God. He takes him to Brook Cherith, where his most basic needs, food and water, would have to come through no effort of of his own. I find it interesting that that word Cherith It's a Hebrew word that means this, to cut down. I think that's interesting because this is the place where God says, Elijah, I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to cut down all the strength that you have so that you learn to rely on me. If that were not enough, later in the story, when the brook runs dry, what does God tell Elijah to do? He tells him not to go to a widow in Israel. He says, I want you to go to a widow in a land called Sidon. Now, if you were listening earlier, you actually heard that name, Sidon. Because Sidon was the hometown of who? Jezebel. The very queen who hates him, who is out to kill him, who is trying to get rid of Israel's God. He says, I want you to go there, and there a widow will provide for you. Now, in our culture, we may not understand this, but in that culture, widows had nothing. (laughs) That a widow could provide for anyone other themselves would have been seen as outrageous in many ways, Ravens would have been seen as more dependable providers than a widow in that culture. Widows didn't have any means to provide. God is taking Elijah to a place where he has to say, God, I'm either all in or I'm out. 
I'm either going to trust you 100% or I'm going to walk away from you. God took Elijah to that place. There's no in-between. So let's make that personal this morning. Are there not times in our lives where God does something like this and we question, God, what in the world are you doing? Where God rips away something that you've relied on. Where God allows something that you love and cherish to be ripped away. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's an income. Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's an opportunity that you you thought, I deserve this, and it's ripped away. Maybe it's your health is ripped away. Maybe it's a relationship with someone that you love that is ripped away. You're left looking at your future and you say, my future looks bleak. I, I don't know why, God, you would rip this thing away from me. Could it be this morning that God is allowing that thing to be cut down just like he did in Elijah's life so that you maybe for the first time could learn that he is actually a trustworthy God? That he and he alone is enough for you. I believe that many of us come to these Brook Cherith moments. We tend to think of all trials and suffering as bad things. But what if in God's school of preparation for eternity? What if in God's school of preparation for that next thing that he's going to call you to? Those trials are exactly what they're meant to be. And that's meant to draw you to himself. A.W. Tozer says it this way, and I always thought this was so good. He said it this. He said, before God can use us, he must break us. How many times have you found that to be true in your life? You were on top of the world. You had all the strength in your own, and yet you, you were very little use for the kingdom of God. But then all of a sudden something happens, something in your life is ripped up, it's cut down. You find yourself desperate before God, and all of a sudden he begins to use you in a new way. I believe we see this happen a lot through trials. Uh, Craig Rochelle is a pastor in Oklahoma City, and I heard him once tell a story about suffering that I think relates to this, uh, what we're talking about today. He tells the story of a, of a little bird that was flying south uh, for the winter. Unfortunately for this little bird, he, he got a late start, and as he was going south, he flew straight into a snowstorm. Well, he tried to fly through this snowstorm and his wings, they they started slowing down. They started to become frozen and all of a sudden they were of no use. And he went down for a crash landing, unable to get up again because he was absolutely frozen. As the bird kind of sat there in in the snow, he thought, well, this is it. Until out of nowhere, a cow came along. This cow came and stood, and he got excited that there was, there was someone that could maybe help him. But to his demise, that cow stood over them, and all of a sudden dropped a huge load of manure right on him. Okay? Well, this bird at first thinks, well, great. My life has just gone from bad to worse. But then, all of a sudden, he begins to see that that manure's warmth is all of a sudden defrosting his wings. It's bringing about something good. And so he starts chirping louder and louder in his excitement and and in his loud chirping until suddenly a cat hears his chirping and comes and eats the bird. Now, say, what point does this story have? Two lessons. Number one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Number two, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful to keep your little chirper shut. Okay? You see, there are, there are times where God brings you to your own brook cherith. 
There are times where God cuts down your own strength, that he allows things to happen in your life that that seem like they are totally against you. The question is, how do you handle those moments? That is what will reveal if you actually have faith in God. It is those moments. Do you all of a sudden get your little chirper going, complaining, being angry at God? Do you give up on God and say, God, I've got this. I'm going to take things into my own strength. Or do you admit, God, I have nothing apart from you. And yet I'm going to trust you and I'm going to hold on to your word. I'm going to hold on to your promises no matter what my circumstances may say. There are times where God allows that manure, that trial, to be the greatest gift that he could ever bring you. Because all of a sudden you realize your complete dependence is not in yourself. It's not in your job. It's not in your title. It's not in your ability to make finances. It's not in your ability to walk or speak or anything else. Your worth is in him. Your dependence is in him. Paul, one of the greatest, most influential people in all of the scriptures, learned this lesson very well. You think your life is bad. Paul endured hardship. He endured trials. People tried to stone him. People tried to kill him. Everywhere he went, he was mocked. And he talked at one place about how he had this thorn in his flesh, this thorn in his side. It doesn't explain what that was because I think God wants us to see that we all have thorns. We all have trials. We all have struggles. But I want you to listen to Paul's perspective on his trial. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. He says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. In essence, he's saying, God, take this trial away from me. Verse nine, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, it is that moment of our greatest weakness that God can work most powerfully in our lives. I wonder this morning, where are you weak? Each one of you know. I want you to really think about this. In your head, I want you to come up with it. Where are you weak right now? Could it be that this is your Brooke Cherith moment in God's school of preparation? No matter what you are facing this morning, you need to know that God is entirely reliable to show his power through your weakness. That's what we see happen in this passage. Elijah simply obeys God, even when it makes no sense. He says, God, I'm going to believe what you said is going to be true. Before he knows it's going to happen, he says, I'm going to believe your word is true. So what happens? He says, the rain's not going to come. All of a sudden, the rain stops. There is no more rain in the land. He goes to the brook Cherith and he says, God, I believe that you're going to provide these ravens to give me food. What happens? The ravens provide him food. God says, go to find a widow in Sidon. He goes and what happens? She shows up. At every point in this passage, he steps out in faith and God shows all over the place that he is utterly trustworthy. The problem is many of us are relying on promises that God has never made. God is always true to his promises, but God never promised you that you would get that promotion. God never promised you that you'd have great health until you're in your 80s. 
God never promised many things, but friends, you need to know something. He did promise greater things than those. He promises that if we confess and repent of our sins, that he will forgive us, forever removing their guilt and shame. What greater promise could there be than that? He promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that his Holy Spirit will come and will indwell us. He promises wisdom and guidance. He promises comfort and strength. He promises peace in the midst of trial. He promises help to overcome temptation. He promises life everlasting lived in relationship with him. And at the end of our lives, we hold on to the promise of John 6, 37, where he said this, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He promises eternal life. One of the greatest things that you as a Christian can do to, when you're reading the scriptures is to go and to look for the promises of God. Hold on to those promises. Don't go to these promises that he never made and then get devastated when they don't happen. Hold on to the promises that God has made. As God was preparing Elijah for the greatest battle of his life, this was the main thing that he needed to learn, that God was utterly trustworthy. And I would say to each one of you in this room, it's the main thing you need to learn. That when you are weak, that's when he's strong. I believe one of the key reasons we see so little of God's power in our lives today is that we refuse to be weak. We refuse to be honest with God about our weaknesses. We want to be seen as strong. We want to rely on our strengths instead of actually relying on God. I believe when we are weak, he will show himself to be strong. We see this play out in the, the widow's life as well. I want to finish the passage here. Let's look with me at verse 10. It says, so he, again, speaking about Elijah, so he arose and went to Zarephath, which is in Sidon. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her again and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. <laughs> Now, this is very important because what God is doing here is he is revealing himself to a pagan worshiper, to a Baal worshiper. He's trying to show her who he is. But what I want you to see is he doesn't make it easy on this widow. No, he says, don't just give me this Elijah water, but also give him food to drink. Listen to her response. Verse 12. It says, and she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now think about what God is asking of this widow. In essence, he's saying, I want you to put it all on the line. Elijah looks at this widow and he says, you know that last meal that you were saving for you and your son before you die? I actually want you to give that to me first. I want you to lay it all on the line. What God is asking in this moment looks like a death verdict, no doubt, to that widow. But friends, oftentimes when God calls us to something, does it not look like death? 
by our own human wisdom, by our own human perspective, when he calls us to these things in the scriptures, does it not look like death? When we have been wrong, does it not look like death to leave justice to God instead of taking that into our own hands? To give generously to others in kingdom work when we're able to financially just scrape by, does that not seem like death many times? To give up a relationship that is dragging us away from Jesus, does that not look like death for those of you who are single? Trusting God with your sexuality looks like death. To forgive and pray for and love your enemies looks like death. To speak openly about Jesus and the gospel in your workplace, it looks like death. And yet, friends, that's what God has called each one of us to, a life of death. Dying to ourselves. You see, this widow is is learning what Jesus would command all of us to do later in the gospel of Matthew when he told his disciples this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, in other words, whoever would try to hold on to their life and save it will lose it. But whoever loses his life, steps out in faith and loses his life, will find it. This is the life of faith. God, Elijah offers assurance to this widow. He says to her, my God is trustworthy. You can trust him. But before you will find that out, what do you have to do? Lay it all on the line. Lay it all down. Friends, this is the second thing that we learn in this passage. Our God is trustworthy, which means this. Our God desires, wants, requires total trust and complete dependence. What God desires for each one of you in this room, if he's really trustworthy, what he desires for you is unconditional surrender. Why? Because those are the instrument he uses to pour out his power on the earth. It's our weakness through which he flows out his power, not our strengths. God is not looking for superhumans with with strengths to change the world. What he is looking for is ordinary people with unconditional surrender and extraordinary confidence in him and him alone. And my prayer for First Baptist Church of San Francisco is that we would be those people. That the city of San Francisco would look at the way that we trust our God, no matter what the circumstances are, the way that we powerfully obey what he calls us to do, and they would say there is something different. They must serve a God who is alive. This this desire, this request upon God for our complete dependence is not just a one-time thing. For those of you who are Christians who have submitted your life to Jesus, you've turned from your sins. That wasn't the only time you lay down your life. This is a daily thing. In fact, that's what you see with the widow. Uh, when, when this widow is called to be obedient, she's not given a 25-pound bag of, of flour and oil, right? What does she have to do? Every single day, she has to go back to see if God came through, right? Monday, there's just enough oil and, 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 and just enough flour for Monday. Tuesday, the same thing. Wednesday, it's a daily process. And yet she does it, and she finds that our God is absolutely reliable. There are many of you in this room that have a lot more Bible knowledge than that widow. There's a lot of you in this room that have maybe grown up in church. Maybe you teenagers, maybe you graduates, you've grown up in church. You know all the right things in your head. But I'm telling you this, we can do no better in the area of faith than this widow. For in this widow, we find that true faith consists of leaning all of our weight upon the mere word of God every single day of our lives. 
This is faith. So Christians in the room, I would ask you this. What has God told you to do? What has God brought you into right now? Where he's trying to get you to trust him entirely, to to step out in faith, to lay it on the line, but you have refused to do so. What has God said in his word that you have not obeyed? Why would you not obey? Because you don't really trust him. What has he called you to do this morning? So many of you, I would imagine, come into this room saying, I I lack so little of God's power in my life. And yet there you are behind your back holding on to that one piece where you've said, God, I don't really trust you with this. This is mine. I got this. If you think that God will take you to that next step in your faith to grow you into that next step while you hold on to that thing God's called you to, you can think again. Elijah would have never been ready for Mount Carmel had he not first been obedient at Brook Cherith. The same will be true of you and your faith. Christian, what are you holding back? If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I would just ask that you consider the kind of God that Scripture is revealing this morning. He is a God who does not help the strong, but does what? He is a God who helps the weak. Do you see that this is different? This is a different God than any other kind of religion? Every other religion says this, those who are morally strong will be rewarded with heaven. Those who, who, who accomplish and achieve are rewarded with success. But the Christian God is a God who says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because the poor in spirit depend on me. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Christian God is is a God who became weak on our behalf. He came and he lived among us and he took the death that we deserve for our sin on the cross. He became weak for us so that we could have eternal relationship with him. And so we as Christians do not enter heaven because we're righteous, because we have this moral bank account that's so full. No, we enter heaven when we realize we have nothing to offer you, God. We are morally corrupt. And we need what you and you alone can provide. Your gift of salvation through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. If you've ever doubted the trustworthiness of Christ, I would just encourage you, dear friend, go and study the cross. 